Do you have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode eight. I'm going to share with you my secret obsession with the wine drinking habits of two women on television and what I believe that says about our cultural relationship with wine. But before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to CoFlow, who left this review on Apple. Quote, Natalie has a way of talking about wine in a down-to-earth way. I look forward to hearing more of the stories of the awkward social situation variety, end quote. Thank you, CoFlow. I'll try to be as awkward as possible going forward. That shouldn't be difficult for me. If you review this podcast and want me to mention your website or social media handle, please include that in your review along with your name. I want to celebrate you and let others know how to connect with you online. Okay, I have to confess. I am obsessed with Alicia Florick, the successful attorney on The Good Wife, played by Juliana Margolis, and Olivia Pope, the high-powered Washington, D.C. fixer on Scandal, played by Kerry Washington. In fact, I know them so well now that I call them Leash and Live, and they call me Nat, in my mind, as we share a glass of wine. Leash and Live often signal their stress with Shiraz or Cabernet, but they aren't the only TV women to do so. There's also Claire Underwood in House of Cards and Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones, both of whom also love to drink moody, dark goblets of red wine. While Cersei's brother Tyrion is known for his comment, I drink wine and I know things, Cersei's line is simply, more wine, my kind of woman. Apparently, they both love the fictional Dornish wines made in the equally fictional southern region of Westeros, akin to robust Spanish reds, according to author George R.R. R. Martin. However, red wine hasn't traditionally been the drink of women on TV. Chardonnay, sure. Cocktails, yes, but big, bold reds? Nope. But today, these women treat red wine like beer or a shot of whiskey, and down their glasses in private, much like those hard-boiled detectives. Think Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe and others who kept a Mickey in their desk. Now, it is true, Tammy Taylor in Friday Night Lights and Carrie Matheson in Homeland are two of those rare women these days who still drink white wine rather than red. However, for Carrie, it's usually as a chaser to her prescription drugs, and Tammy seems happier overall than any of these women, so perhaps that's why she's still a sunshine Chardonnay gal. I did notice, though, that she starts leaning on the Chard a bit more frequently when her husband's coaching job is in jeopardy. Now back to our two main characters. Season four of Scandal opens with Liv having fled to a desert island, 
a hundred miles off the coast of Zanzibar, part of Tanzania, with her on-again, off-again, beer-loving boyfriend, Jake. How can that last? It can't. We know it. Anyway, they get a delivery of supplies that includes Chateau du Boulet, a made-up French wine, but let's not quibble. It's a rare 1994 vintage, of which only a hundred bottles were made. She tells Jake that this wine will, quote, change your life. Jake asks if there's any beer in the shipment. Leave him live. She has five of those really, really rare 100 bottles. Based on the bottle shape, I think it's a burgundy or a roan. I'm okay with that. But really, why is she drinking fine French red wine on a beach? It's far too warm. If you're that close to Zanzibar live, drink local. Get an excellent South African Chenin Blanc like Waterkloof. Or even better, a sparkling wine made by Graham Beck, who uses the Cap Classique method, which essentially is the same as champagne of having the second fermentation in the bottle to trap the bubbles. Those would be far more refreshing and joyous on a sun-drenched sandy island with your stubborn, beery boyfriend. This is one of the many things that I could have helped show creator Shonda Rhimes with. Now, I understand that there isn't a budget to have a wine consultant on a desert island set. But Shonda, just Skype me. Still, this season opener is one of my favorite episodes because wine drives the plot. It's a MacGuffin, much like the Russian writer Anton Chekhov's rifle. As he wrote, quote, If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. End quote. Amen. Pour a glass of wine, you drink it, girl. The rifle foreshadows an ominous ending. Wine is that plot device in this episode. Liv's associate, Quinn, back in Washington, tracks her down to that desert island by tracing the wine shipment. As she explains to Liv later, quote, Everyone has a tell. Yours is wine. Red wine. Rare, complex, fantastic red wine. End quote. Brooding dark red wines do pair better with political intrigue than whites. Plus, chilled white wine can mist over with condensation in the glass, which would be unsightly. Then again, the set designer probably wouldn't chill the wine properly either, but let me not get distracted again. Liv and the president's chief of staff, Cyrus Bean, also enjoy a glass or two while discussing rigging elections and other matters. She once opened for him, quote, a Bordeaux that will bring tears to your eyes, end quote. Meanwhile, First Lady Melly Grant tells Liv over lunch with beautiful menace, quote, I know how you love your wine, end quote. Their arch rivals, not least because her philandering husband, President Fitzgerald Grant III, is in love with Liv. But Liv's most serious love affair is with red wine, alone in her apartment. Wine is mostly used to drink away the stress at the end of the day. It's never something to enjoy in moderation with family, friends, and food. It's a coping mechanism. 
after a long day of cleaning up after sloppy politicians, she self-medicates with a glass of red. A very large glass of red. In fact, she drinks from a 23-ounce goblet, which is actually Crate and Barrel's Camille glass with extra-long stems. And by the way, a bottle of wine contains 26 ounces. This is a seriously large glass. It actually reminds me of the progressively larger glasses and the occasional flower vase that Jules Cobb, played by Courtney Cox in Cougar Town, used. She even named them. Big Joe, Big Carl, Big Chuck. When Big Joe broke, she eulogized him, saying, quote, He was always there when I needed him. End quote. Her fictional product, the Guzzle Buddy, a screw-on wine glass attachment that converted a bottle into a convenient single serving, is now a product on the market in real life. Meanwhile, sales of Crate and Barrel's glasses quadrupled after word got out about Liz's glass brand. And they temporarily ran out of stock. Other glasses in that same line didn't experience any change of sales. So let's just ignore the fact that Liv often drinks Bordeaux from this giant burgundy glass, holds her glass by the bowl, and chugs. No sipping, swirling, sniffing. Call me, Shonda. I'm here for you. My biggest concern is that I get so nervous every time Liv drinks from that glass in her apartment because she's usually wearing white silk outfits sitting on her pristine white sofa. Even when she goes casual, like in her Donna Karen Boyle cashmere oversized cardigan, her so-called wine cardigan, it's still white. This reminds me of when I was a child competing in the Highland Games as a dancer. My mother would hold her breath during the sword dance. If you touched it, you were disqualified. Now I hold my breath for Liv. Don't spill it, Liv. Does she have spot remover handy, something like wine away? I worry. Liv's own mother is out of the picture most of the time in this series, though she does tell her daughter in one less than poignant moment, quote, In my 22 years of prison, you know the thing I miss the most? A really good wine, end quote. Nice. Liv's father, Eli Pope, introduced her to fine red wine. He's one of the few men drinking red wine in this show, or really any other. He even uses words like palate, for goodness sakes. It seems that real men, like the president, drink whiskey, much like Mad Men's Don Draper. Drinking red wine doesn't make Eli seem effeminate so much as conniving. He's a treacherous spy who manages to distract Liv with great wine. At a fancy restaurant, they get sidetracked into a debate about what he calls the cheap stuff, but she says is just not snobby. Several times during the series, she's drinking another fictional wine called California Oak. Side note, when wine is aged in oak barrels, it's usually French or American, sometimes Hungarian. American oak barrels are made from trees grown in 18 states, but California is not one of them. Overusing oak is something that happens in California. I call oak 
the ketchup of the wine world, masking a lot of winemaking flaws when it's overused. So my question is, what is this wine called California Oak really masking here plot-wise? I'm still digging into that. Liv is usually drinking that wine with a big bowl of popcorn, which, incidentally, would be much better with a buttery California Chardonnay, like Louis Martini. Food pairings are never discussed, though I think her big reds would pair really well with the show's fake fast food Gettysburgers. This show now seems prescient. Fake wines, fake pairings, fake news. The real scandal, though, is that Liv is drinking grape juice on the set. Carrie Washington told media that she doesn't even drink wine herself. Quote, who needs the empty calories? Huh? Meanwhile, Courtney Cox is a method actor, so she actually drinks the real stuff on Cougar Town. Why do I feel happy about that? On a serious note, I think my attraction to Liv and her wine drinking shares something with the way that Ernest Hemingway felt about F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was, quote, his alcoholic. She's my fictional enabler. I drink alongside her. She drinks more than I do, though she never gets drunk. Alicia Florick, leash, also loves her vino. Celebrating a major case victory? Have a glass of wine. Find out your politician husband is cheating on you? Have a glass of wine. Is your daughter joining a religious cult? Have a glass of wine. Secretly, I identify with Leash more than Liv because I went into the combined LLB MBA program at the University of Western Ontario. After completing the first year of the MBA, I decided that business was more my speed than law and dropped the LLB part, even though I did much better on the LSAT exams than on the GMATs, a fact I like to remind Miles every time we watch the show. My inner uneducated baby lawyer gets satisfaction living vicariously through just about any legal drama. The wine is a bonus. Leash is also often drinking alone and channels her darkness into that glass. This is not the light-hearted wine snobbery of Fraser or girls' night out cosmopolitan cocktails of Sex in the City. And wine no longer even symbolizes affluence and education. It just signals personal trauma. Leash misses the days when she was a stay-at-home mom, drinking a glass of wine at 5 p.m. as she gets nostalgic. Now she pounds back a ginormous glass of red wine later in the evening. She doesn't pretend to be a wine connoisseur like Liv. She'll also order martinis or tequila shots at the bar where all the lawyers go on the show to backstab each other. There's never a mention of specific wine regions, grapes, or labels. As she says, this will make more sense if I get more wine. Apparently, it doesn't matter which one. Upper middle class life is stressful, but not violent. So perhaps that's the rationale from the transition from white wine to red, down like hard liquor. What strikes me, though, is that no one talks to them about having a problem with wine. It's just accepted that this is what successful, busy women do. That ritual glass of wine, or three, at the end of the day, 
like a sedative to bring down the galloping racehorse of a mind. Both shows offer fascinating insights about wine, women, and culture. However, I question why I'm so obsessed with them. Is it schadenfreude, pleasure in others' misfortune? I don't think so. It's something darker than that, something that I struggle with daily. How about you? Do you have a favorite TV or movie character who loves their wine? Any memorable wine moments you'd like to share with me? You can tag me on Twitter or Facebook at Natalie McLean. On Instagram, I'm at Natalie McLean Wine. Or use the hashtag UnreservedWineTalk. You'll find all of the real wines I mentioned in this podcast in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash eight. Next week, we'll chat with Ezra Sipes of Summerhill Estates Winery in British Columbia, who will tell us exactly what is a vegan or vegetarian wine, and are they better for you than the carnivore kind? If you like this podcast, please share it this week with one wine-loving friend. Just send them the URL, nataliemclean.com forward slash podcast, or share it on social media. I can't wait to share more personal wine stories with you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this one. I hope that something great is in your glass this week. Cheers. You don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemclean.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. Cheers.